This episode of the VFX Show is brought to you by SohoNet, the world's expert in connectivity and data management for media and entertainment industries. The SohoNet service and technical support provide integration on a global scale between studios and facilities, whatever their size, wherever in the world. Listen out next week for our special 200th FX podcast at fxguide.com, out October 6th. Welcome to this week's VFX show. I'm Mike Seymour, and I'm joined by some actually new or re- sort of relatively new scruffy nerf herders. Um, starting with you, Matt Leonard. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you. Now, Matt, uh, you're coming to us from London, so this is really an international uh, tri-continental show uh, this week. Um, how's things in the UK? Very good, very good. We're just going into our uh, kind of autumn winter stage, so it's typically rainy here, but it's been uh, it's been a good week and pleased to be on the show. And and my other nerf herder is uh, Mark Wheelodge, who's joining us for the first time. Mark, welcome to the show. Hello. Now, Hello from Hollywood, where it's uh, 90 degrees in the shade. <laughs> so, Mark, um, just before we get into this week's show, which is obviously on uh, Star Wars and the... Um, and timed with the Blu-ray re-release, Blu-ray re-release of the films. Um, can we just get a bit of a perspective for those that obviously would not know your background and your relationship to these projects, just so we can get that up front? Uh, I've been a colorist for about 25 years. I've worked on about 250 home video projects for all the major studios, including including Fox, Disney, Miramax, Warner Brothers, and Disney. Uh, I've done a lot of uh, recent Blu-rays that are out, including uh, Dances with Wolves, Die Hard, Sound of Music, all kinds of uh, films like that. Back in 2004, I was sort of hired um, as a freelance colorist by Industrial Light and Magic, who had set up a temporary color correction room up there in San Rafael uh, at their, their old building up there on Kerner Boulevard. And they had set up a Pogel uh, color correction suite, which is now considered very outdated. And we did all the color correction basically out of a closet, uh, entirely the opposite of what you would consider a THX color correction room. ILM wanted to handle it there rather than going to a conventional color correction suite in London or New York or Hollywood because they were wanted to be very hands-on and control every aspect of the transfer with great secrecy and security. Now, this, just to be clear to everyone that's listening, this was the 2004 version, right? Correct. This was February, March, and April of 2004. We took about three months. I only worked on uh, Episode 4 and Episode 6. Empire had already been uh, color-corrected uh, in the winter by Natasha Leonette, who is a fine colorist over at eFilm. Yeah, no, E-Film do good work. And I think that film was scanned at that time by PostScript, wasn't it? Is that right? Or That was my original impression. I have since been in touch with, uh, I believe his name is Mike Kaminsky yep. of um, the uh, Secret History of Star Wars website. And Mike corrects me and says, no, the scanning was actually done by IVC. 
um, in Hollywood, and they were using a C-Reality scanner. I believe, I believe the reason why is at the time that was the only way to get 444 color uh, out of a 35-millimeter scan. So for some reason at that time, there was, there was an issue with the uh, traditional Thomson Spirit scanners, which were conventionally used for real-time scanning back then. Yeah, well, actually, the, I, I actually come from a Telecine background, so I was actually worked at yep. Centel, and uh, so there was Thompson, or so there was the uh, before that there was the Ursa Gold, around the same time sure. as the Ursa Gold, sure, um, as well as the Spirit. But those are those are absolutely Telecine scans, um, right. which of course many films these days wouldn't go through a Telecine process; they'd uh, they'd go through a, a DI process that would get the neg scanned, and then you'd sort of branch out from that to run out like to a an HD master or to a film master, because this is the day that you'd be going back to the film and transferring that. And of course, this is, brings up the whole restoration issue, which is one of the things we want to discuss today, this idea of restoring films and, and some of the issues that, that go with that. Now, we, we never normally have people on the VFX show that worked on a film, because this is obviously not an interview show. But I did think, Mark, it was great having you on, because you've got that perspective on restoration and dealing with these films and of course you didn't do the blu-ray so we're not directly commenting on your work um though you know you know a lot we're, of the uh, issues involved the, the the jury the jury is still kind of out on that um i was able to watch star wars that is to say episode four completely from start to finish last night and uh, i am torn on whether this is an entirely new scan and new transfer or the old scan and a new transfer or bits and pieces of my transfer with some new bits hmm. or what it is. I, I think it's kind of a hodgepodge. Uh, I did see some certain scenes, particularly the opening shot and the white corridors where the stormtroopers are running down the uh, hallway and shooting uh, blasters back and forth. And uh, I, I, I caught a few white wall color matching issues, which uh, are the kind of thing I would have never let go by. They'd be a little bit blue tinted in one shot, a little bit warmish in another shot, and a little bit uh, neutral in a third shot. And I thought, eh, I don't remember it looking quite that inconsistent. Um, so, and yet other scenes look exactly like what I did. It's very possible a new transfer was done, or at least a new color correction was done, and they precisely matched it to what was done back in 2004 by myself and Rich Garibaldi, who was the other person working on the, uh, the show. And um, it's possible that they diverged a little bit because, you know, over time, people's minds do change about how they want color. Well, this is a, a terrific uh, group we've got because, Matt, your background is obviously very strong in 3D and, uh, and sort of visual effects per se. And, of course, this, this marries both parts of what this, uh, this whole uh, issue is, I guess, with this restoration and looking back at the Star Wars films because some of the, the issues, probably the most popular issues about these restorations deal with redoing visual effects and what was or wasn't possible, especially digital characters, which, of course, right up your alley, Matt. And then, of course, other areas are incredibly important in terms of the grade and the look and restoring um, the film. Matt, let me start with you. And, and where did you sort of in your life come into Star Wars? Um, just to sort of give some perspective on this. I presume you weren't sitting in the cinema in 77. No, I, I was... Uh pretty young back then and I actually don't have any recollection of seeing um, any of the first three at the cinema um, I was obviously definitely there for the, uh, the, pre the you know the version one two and three as we know it now um, so I think I originally saw Star Wars on uh, what would have been video or 
DVD. So I, I think we should fess up to the rest of the show. Let's call them 1, 2, and 3, 4, 5, and 6, even though we know that 4, 5, and 6 came out before 1, 2, and 3, just because <laughs> we'll get our, ourselves um, in a knot. And, and Mark, what about you? When did you enter the Star Wars, just at a personal level? Uh, I worked for Modern Video Film, which is a large post-production company uh, in the 70s and 80s and still exists today. It was Modern that did the very first home video transfer of Star Wars uh, that was released on VHS and Laserdisc. That was done by very fine colorist uh, Pat Kennedy. And later it was redone once again in Letterbox by Lou Levinson, who was and still is one of the greatest feature colorists uh, around. Yeah, Lou's and so there, there, there's been quite a few people whose hands have been on the uh, Star Wars transfers over the years. Ah, but when did you see it first? Uh, I saw it uh, in the theater uh, probably the day it came out in 77 when wow. I was in my early 20s. So, uh, so I was there. So and, I uh, – uh, I similarly did the same thing. I saw it as a kid uh, in a cinema. Obviously, I think I think Matt, Mark, you and I are older than Matt, so we can confess that. <laughs> um, yeah, these these whippersnappers. Yeah, but uh, but I will say this: I when I saw the second one, and I have this as a very vivid memory that came flashing back uh, yesterday when I was watching the uh, episode five again on Blu-ray. Um, I walked out of five, walked across the road to then uh, there was a Pizza Hut kind of restaurant in the kind of cinema district in Sydney. And I sat there unable to comprehend how I could wait until the next film came out. Just just mind-numbingly stunned that I would have to wait to work out what was going to happen. And just over and over and over again questioning uh, the whole issue of Luke's father and, uh, and Vader. And I, I just remember just thinking it would be impossible to live to get to see the next film to work out what happened. So... Uh, now, you I, see, I, I loved it. I, I, I thought that was a great thing because I got it. I said, I see what he's doing. The, fir- the, the first film and the third film are going to be bookends and Empires in the Middle. I got it. And it, it completely worked for me. But well, I understand why some people yeah. felt cheated. I, I didn't feel cheated. I just was um, dumbstruck because I hadn't had that experience before. And yeah. uh, it seemed an eternity back then to have to wait for the next film to come out. I think the other thing is I, I'm one of those generation that definitely was influenced to go into visual effects by Star Wars. I mean, f- I sat down the front row uh, because we got into a screening late. Uh, and so we got sort of bad seats down the front. So when I saw Star Wars, you know, the ship came in from overhead and it, was, it filled my entire peripheral vision. It was the closest experience to IMAX I had back then as a kid. And uh, I think I was hooked from then on out. So, so I carry that baggage into the show. Now, the other thing I will say is I also remember very distinctly when the first of the restorations happened, um, there was a really terrific film promo that ran in the cinemas here. I'm sure it ran in the States as well. Where it basically You're talking said, about the 1997 version. Yeah, and it said like an entire generation has only seen it on the small screen and then the X-Wings busted out of this box on the screen and sort of filled the screen. And maybe, uh, Mark, you'd know about this. It seemed that there had been really significant damage to what was generally regarded as a kind of a incredibly important sort of piece of cinema and that the original Star Wars really wasn't in good nick going into that sort of 97 restoration. Do you know if that was true or was it just the press perception of it at the time? Yes. What I was told by a very high-ranking Fox post-production executive in the 1990s was that the original cut camera negative of Star Wars had been extensively damaged in Japan 
at some point uh, during the 1980s, and I think nobody had been aware of it until they opened up the cans around 95 or 96 and saw that there were massive scratches on the emulsion side of the film. Uh, the exact words of the executive to me was, it looked like someone held a fork up to all seven rolls of film and just scratched them right down the center. Which, which sounds horrible. Yeah. Uh, in addition to that, there was also a tremendous amount of negative fading and color shifting and density flutter and things like that going on. So, Matt, let me ask you this. Do you perceive that the community or you as an individual thinks that this kind of restoration is a bad thing, that's going back and getting us sort of a better color, more accurate kind of ballsier, contrastier, prettier looking picture with less dirt and certainly removing damage. Is that a, a, a seen by anyone as a negative, do you think? I don't think so. I think it can only be a good thing. I mean, thinking back of what it was like when I first saw it and then obviously at that 97 release and then 2004 and even up to the Blu-ray, I think just adding that contrast, adding that color changes really have helped. So I can't see anyone would be uh, worried about that or complaining about it. I will say that if you want to get a sample of how crappy it was, <laughs> I don't know if this is a good way to sample it, but on the current Blu-ray DVDs, there's some uh, documentaries about the making of Star Wars and the footage in those, which I can presume was like a sort of transferred to, uh, I don't know, one-inch tape and then edited in one-inch and went out uh, presumably on some sort of network television. It's just so appallingly bad. It's hard to believe Horrible. that it's uh, it's real film. Yeah, um, yeah. But uh, let me ask you this, just in terms of the colour grading, and I guess obviously this is a question uh, aimed at you, Mark, but how much has it progressed between the 97 restoration, the 2004 and today? Does it, When you're watching the Blu-ray, does it feel like it keeps changing each time or is it a, has that sort of colour palette thing gone back to where it was meant to be and then kind of stuck? I think it's very close, actually, to what we did in 2004. I'm torn between wanting to believe that what I see on the Blu-ray is my work and that of Rich Garibaldi, the other colorist on the job, uh, and believing that some of it is redone uh, in 2011 or 2010. My, my guess is that what we are seeing is yet another attempt to regrade the film, but not entirely from scratch. I think what we did in 2004 was pretty much done from scratch, pretty much ignoring the video transfers that had been done prior to that. In fact, I was told uh, by Rick McCallum, uh, Lucas's producer, who supervised a great deal of the post-production process, that Mr. Lucas had never personally supervised a video transfer before ever of Star Wars until 2004. This was the first one that he had a hands-on approach on. The previous ones in the 80s were all supervised by Howard Kazanjian, and then the 90s ones were done by Rick McCallum, and now George was doing it himself. And um, I guess, Matt, the, the really interesting thing from my point of view is that because uh, a lot of focus is done on the computer graphics, which obviously is your forte being strong in 3D. Um, and there is a bit of a melding of these two. So there's this sort of straight restoration work, which 
we all sort of, I think, probably seen the before and afters on uh, the white walls in the original Rebel ship when uh, Vader first appears in in Episode Four, and you know it was like not white, <laughs> now it is. Yeah, um, right. But then there's the uh, let's go to Episode uh, Five for a second, and we actually have an interesting mix here between where visual effects and 3D hit because Matt, in those scenes, at some point, one of the restorations, I think it was the 2000 and version, they knocked out some walls and started putting in more views out into the Sky City. And so now you've got an interesting mix because you're actually adding effectively with Roto and and, uh, matte painting and CG and therefore affecting the grade because you obviously have to affect it if you suddenly open up and have a lot of orange light pouring in from from one side. And again, I would ask you, Matt, in your impression of things, is that the stuff that, that got people worked up? I mean, obviously some purists did. Uh, but it feels to me that those things, which I'm going to say are, are away from character-based stuff, wasn't the stuff that's caused any controversy in terms of the restoration. Would that be how you perceive it? Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think you're not really changing the story. You're not changing those things that the fans love. I think if George was looking at those shots and thinking, oh, maybe I couldn't have done this originally, but I can now, then I don't really have a problem with that. But obviously, as you said, it does affect the grading and the whole look of the shot, especially if you knock a hole in the wall through to outside or something. But overall, those kind of things don't really bother me. Um, It's the other kind of uh, adding in Jabba the Heart and things like that, which I think would be more um, difficult to look at if you're coming from the original films and how they were intended to be. So so now we get to the sort of the, the pointy end of the restoration thing, which is the big things that have been done. Now, some of those things you mentioned, Jabba the Heart being reintroduced, um, is a case of a deleted scene being restored. And that's uh, not an uncommon issue when uh, restoration work happens. I mean, I don't know how many versions <laughs> have been done by Ridley Scott of Blade Runner, but, um, you know, this idea of a kind of a director's cut and a final cut and a recut and adding in deleted scenes, well, that happens in other films. Um, but then there's, in this current restoration, there's digitally replacing Yoda from episode one, uh, so he's consistent between one, two, and three. And then, of course, if we go to um, some of the other key sort of spark points, flash points in the films, uh, we've got, obviously, who shot first uh, in the cantina and and taking out um, the character that's seen at the end of episode three as uh, Vader's un- damaged self and replacing the actor with um, the actor from series uh, one, two, and three so that they sort of tie in. And so that work in of itself is, I guess, well, Mark, do you feel like that's making a consistency across six films or do you feel that that's a filmmaker just wanting to change a film to make it better? Well, Mike, I, I think what you're getting into is where where is the line being crossed be- between restoration and revisionism? Restoration technically is just fixing grain issues, fixing scratches, fixing color problems, density problems, breathing problems, any sort of film issues. The revisionistic part of it, you know, is a creative choice by Lucas. And uh, just to get this out of the way very quickly, I am not an apologist for George. Uh, I consider the people up at ILM my friends. I understand what they're doing, and I know the fans, some of the fans are very, very upset about it. But everyone has to bear in mind, these are his films. He literally owns the negatives, all the rights, the copyrights, the distribution, created all the characters, wrote all the movies, directed four out of the seven. So when you, when you do that, he's in a unique position in the history of film. If anyone has the right to change their creative works, 
I would say he's the guy. Having said that, I'll, I'll say what we have not said up to this point, which is it would have been nice just for historical purposes if they had released a true restoration which had the 1977 version of Star Wars, the 1980 version of Empire, and the 1983 of Jedi, even if they made it a limited edition, separate Blu-ray, whatever. I think that way you could satisfy everyone. You could satisfy George, who wants his current 2011 vision of the films on, uh, on uh, Blu-ray and DVD, and it would also make the historians, the fans, and the... Uh, nutty Star Wars enthusiasts happy to get the originals back. I well, wish on, they had done that, but it's not my decision in, to make. Didn't they do that in, like, 97? I seem to remember they were, like, they released the films as this is the last time you can buy them the way they were yeah. originally, right before they did this is the new version? Right, and, and of course, that. even... Even those were not exactly the original versions. Those had still been tweaked, and every single release has always been remixed, including okay. the brand-new Blu-rays. Okay, so so let the me, audio is still different. Yeah, so let me put my f- sort of stamp on this. That I, sure. I, I put people that – like there are people that are perfectionists about this in terms of you know, don't touch a frame, and those are, in my mind – equivalent to people that buy action figures and don't take them out of the box because they want to keep them in pristine condition. <laughs> a, I don't really get buying the action figure, and B, why buy an action figure if you don't touch it? Um, but anyway, so I'm, I'm not in that. I'm not in that. I don't really care. <laughs> what I do think is interesting, though, is, um, is the creative process and the visual effects and how they have changed and what they've done. And, and how they stack up, because we've got a really, really good case here. I can't think of many equivalent. Maybe you get a little bit of this in the Bond franchise, where uh, you have the same material being covered by successive generations of visual effects artists with generations of different of, uh, of tools. And we get to see how that problem is solved by multiple people. I mean, there's a lightsaber that's being done by an optical printer and there's a lightsaber that's being done by the latest version of kind of nuke and it's i mean i don't mean that literally but you know that's the kind of nature of the of the breadth we've got here so for the vfx show i think that's a pretty interesting thing um to look at so let's pick a couple of these controversial points and then we can move to maybe some of the more um uh, esoteric um aspects of it but i'm just going to get it right out of the way first out of the gate which is the um the editing and changes around who shot first in the cantina. And this is something that, to my eye, seems to have changed every time this has been edited. Is that your impression, Mark? Yeah, that is. And I I actually laughed out loud when I saw the Blu-ray for the first time last night, uh, when I saw that they have pulled up a few frames. So now they fire, you know... uh, pretty much at the same time isn't isn't that the way it is now it's 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 a little closer now it, yeah. and uh and i and i think now they're sort of leaving it up for grabs as to whether han shot first now it's han shot at the same time <laughs> <laughs> so this is this is an issue for me not because i wore a t-shirt saying han shot first but because these kind of changes uh go to character and motivation and story and so these fall, I guess, in the in easily the most controversial bucket. I mean, whether or not you decide to change uh, a comp or adjust the uh, way that the exterior of a snow planet looks on the interior from the space shot, uh, spaceship that's flying over it is is of interest to me personally. But it certainly doesn't really change the plot in any way, shape, or form. Um, 
But I guess from another viewpoint, these are the least visual effects kind of changes because you are literally talking about them dropping frames rather than reanimating lasers, as far as I understand. Um, Matt, do you feel that uh, that there were many of these things that that really were visual effects coming in or re revisionist edits that were effectively changing any kind of character motivation or plot? That was definitely the main one that I spotted. And to be honest, though, it wasn't such a big deal. It did, to me, feel like I was slightly cheated. I liked it the way it was originally. You just kind of got a feel for who was in charge, what, how it was kind of playing out in that scene. And just pulling it together, you just kind of felt like... Um, the rules had been changed and the character of the people had changed as well. I mean, the other one, you know, it's obviously the, it's been around the internet, is the no uh, audio change mm. put over. Um, uh, That's hard to defend. <laughs> okay, but I'm going to say that we aren't going to defend it. We're not even going to discuss it too much because we, we, we just literally now just becoming film critics. So I'm going to... If there isn't any other visual effects that are like strong on plot, let's just hit the visual effects that have a uh, punch. And I'll say that I want to start this conversation, this technical part of the conversation, by asking you, and I'll start with you, Matt, do you feel that the, the CG alterations, the things that have been done that have been implanted in the, in the films before even today, have aged as well as the original optical effects aged in their own right? I think to some degree they haven't. Looking back at what some of the changes they made in the 97 release, they definitely feel like they stand out as almost not quite fitting in with the look of what's going on. Um, so I think that's a shame in some degree. Um, and then obviously there's been some quite big changes in a number of the shots in this 2011 Blu-ray release as well. Because there are shots that were added, and I know this is a really bizarre way to look at this problem but there were shots that were added uh a decade ago uh, or more and some of those shots i think stand up well today uh for example i'll give you an, the x-wings uh, there's a shot where we, they're approaching camera and the camera tracks with them almost 180 degrees they pass the camera and fly away again and that shot to me in space holds up really really well and looks really valid and really terrific um there are some other shots like uh, Han stepping on Jabba the Hutt's tail that feel really kind of hokey and don't seem to have aged as well in comparison to shots around it that were from 1977. Now, admittedly, the 77 ones got recalibrated, but and sure, there are a bunch of shots, um, I don't know, the final trench sequence in four where you, you know, really does sort of look like it's a, a kind of a, a miniature that you're flying at at various points and, and some of the comps are. But still, there's a lot of the original 77 optics that shouldn't look this good uh, compared to how not so well some of the visual effects from, the, from a decade ago have kind of aged. I wonder if this a, is this kind of like saying how wonderful the optics were or is it just that the optics being based in reality just go better through a restoration project. You know, I think it's, it's important to note uh, there is a real difference in feel between uh, model animation and model VFX than CG effects. To me, I've always felt like the CG effects, the more modern effects, kind of pull you out of the film. But artistically, maybe a better question would be, what would a, a modern kid, a 2011 teenager, let's say, who had never seen the films before in his life, how would he feel 
seeing the films, would he be able to tell the difference between a 1976-77 uh, visual effect done the old-fashioned way with an optical printer and a uh, – 1999 or 2004 or 2011 visual effects completely done by uh, done on CG. So that's kind of the question. For me, yes, they kind of pull you out of the film, but at the same time, what can I say? We're in service of the director. It is his film. Well, here's another interesting question. Is, is Just from a visual effects point of view, what hasn't been touched? So, for example, it struck me looking at uh, episode five, and I know we're focusing on four, five, and six a lot, but we'll swing around the others but on five it really looked uh like i could tell that the snow walkers the um were soft frame animation we know them to be soft frame animation they're one of the most famous kind of soft frame animation sequences but it still felt like it had that soft frame vibe and it occurred to me that all i would need to do is take that footage and then work out a um in Furnace, for example, I could run it through a plug-in that would give me motion blur, artificial motion blur based on optical flow, and then I could reapply that motion blur back into the frame and remove some I'm of that stop motion five. You, you would you would take modern uh, CG VFX and degrade them to look as bad as the 1980 Go Motion model work. No, I'd say I'd take the Go Motion work and add modern. I'm not saying I would. I'm saying I could take stop well, motion footage, add. Uh, motion blur on top of it and take away some of the stop motion feel. Well, I mean, um, you wouldn't do I it. I got it. You wouldn't do it because it's not a good idea. But let's take the, the chess game, for example, where, um, you know, classically there's a game, well, I called it chess, but, you know, the classic uh, sort of Harryhausen type figures are killing each other on the, on the quote, chessboard. Uh, sure. if, if you took that stop motion and then ran modern optical flow over it, the the jitteriness, the lack of go-motionness in that footage would severely be diminished and it would look more like a flowing animation because as a character swung its arm, it would have motion blur on its arm and it wouldn't be a, a blur overall. It would be a blur based on motion because you'd be perceiving that or tracking that hand from frame to frame. Now, I'm not saying they should or, do that. Or, or, what about, or what about the vector graphics animation done of the uh, diagrams of the Death Star and things like that? Another great but example. That stuff is crazy. And the, yeah, uh, it's, it's crazy that, that he left that completely alone in the, the target film locking and chose not to change it. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, the aerial fighting when they have that uh, really kind of clunky. So, Matt, what do you think? Do you, do you, were you surprised that none of that stuff's ever come under the revision knife? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that would, I mean, the, um, those, I think they're 8080s, the, uh, the snow walkers, that would definitely have been something that I was kind of expecting he would change if he was going to go in and replace Yoda in uh, episode one, then why not go in and do something? I'm not saying go in and kind of replace Phil Tippett's work, but maybe add the motion blur. With regards to the kind of stop motion uh, chess pieces, as the, you know, the hologram effects, I think they look quite nice as they were. Um, it kind of had that kind of CG gamey feel which was good but yeah definitely on some of the other kind of stop motion things I think they could really be improved to some degree by by either adding uh, some kind of motion blur optically as an optical flow system or maybe even uh, replacing them totally though obviously the fans would be up in arms over that I, I don't advocate changing them but you have to say that if you were at ILM and they had the technology to improve them, 
at any point when they were making them, they would have adopted the technology to improve them when they were making them. Yeah, so uh, it's not that I'm advocating that somebody goes in because I love the charm of them and the old yeah. feel of them. Yeah, but I'm just simply saying that uh, yeah, I mean they kind of stand out as a technical thing that is possibly taking you out of the film, but certainly a technical thing that you know could be fixed that wasn't fixed. Those motion graphics, I think, are really really interesting, um, and. In some respects, uh, they've almost become so retro that, that they no longer are quite so cringy. I remember cringing over them more in some of the earlier, maybe uh, the 97 one kind of thing, where it was sort of really, uh, really, really obvious. So let me ask you guys, what did you think of episode one's Yoda? Uh, Mark, what did you think? Uh, I, I, you know, I understand why they would go in that direction. And, uh, you know, one I think is, is maybe not as sac- sacrosanct it, it's it's not as uh highly regarded as the other films in fact i think you can pretty much uh, say it's uh, reviled by uh, a lot of fans so i i don't think it has the uh religious uh devotion to accuracy that the other films do so i i understand why they would do that uh, I, I remember when they when they did replace yoda with cg in the later films uh reading about how how hard they worked to try to get the wobble of the rubber puppet and the ears just right. And they demonstrated this for Frank Oz, and he was appalled. He said, no, you don't understand. We hate that in our puppets. We hate the fact that they, that they wobble because they're made of rubber and felt and all of that stuff. And they said, no, 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 that's all part of Yoda's character. George, is li- George likes that. I, so, I, I uh, heard Rob Coleman. The fact, that they were, the fact that they were able to reproduce that is amazing. So I heard Rob Coleman, and I've met Rob Coleman a few times. I've introduced him at some conferences and stuff, and Rob did the animation on that, as he did on, uh, behind Jar Jar Binks. And, boy, hearing him talk, he said the pressure on him to get Yoda's CG Yoda right, given the horrendous fan backlash against Jar Jar, um, and I will point to Jar Jar as a classic case of you can't shoot the messenger because Jar Jar was a character voiced and written and supervised and everything else by George Lucas. And given the particular proportions of that character, um, as annoying as the character was, the ILM team did a pretty technically good job of implementing it. Or, you know, it's sort of like how can you kind of go at the guys? But that being said, obviously Rob Coleman felt very personally pressured <laughs> by uh, the fact that he was touching, let's face it, cinema kind of um, uh, royalty when he was doing Yoda. I I actually thought the CG Yoda, especially in, uh, now I'm going to say it's episode three, uh, was it, well, which is the Clone War one where he does the fight um, with the lightsaber. Was that three? Um, Yeah, I think that was three, yeah. Yeah, I thought that was, some people didn't like it, but I thought it was solving an immensely difficult technical creative challenge, which is how do you animate a character that we've got used to being looking very old and uh and limited in their range of movement how do we animate that character so you would believe they could hold um a really animated near kung fu level kind of uh sword fight off um and i thought that was just a superbly done version i didn't need though and it must have been quite a lot of work i didn't really need them to go replace him in, in episode uh one but did you guys sort of sense anything about one that was different from two and three? In other words, was the new redone episode one guy very much matching now the two and three animation? That was uh, one of the things I was looking at closely. It was 
one of the things that I was most keen to see because um, I was really hoping it would look look good and I think it looked excellent. Um, I've been trying to find out who was overseeing the animation of that because obviously Rob would have done uh, episode two and three, but I think he's now at Dr. D's, isn't yep, he? Yep. Um, so he obviously wouldn't have been able to oversee that change, I'm guessing. Um, but looking at uh, Yoda in uh, episode one, the, the new version, and uh, how he looked in the uh, second and third, I thought it held up very well and just looked superb, to be honest. It's, it's technology now that's more kind of uh, doable, right? Because we've got subsurface scattering, we've got that kind of down, and let's face it, ILM has done amazingly great character animation work. So it really, it, it's really about the expressiveness of their performance. And then at this point, you'd have to be thinking that they're matching as closely as they can to the expressiveness of the performance from the original puppeteering. So right. you've kind of got a really a constrained um, kind of place where you're existing because you're not going to reinterpret the character. You're not doing what Rob did in episode three, whereas you're solving a really super technical problem uh, of how do I bring this character to perform this function. Like those, those staging issues had kind of been solved for you, hadn't they? Yeah, and looking back at that fight, it was quite amazing to see how they were doing things and how they were bringing the action into play. Uh, there was definitely a sense that what he, what Yoda was doing and what his his cloak was doing and things like that were very slightly different. It just seemed that they had animated the cloak kind of almost as a um, character in and of itself to some way, and I really like that idea. One of the technical things... Um and uh, about one that I always found interesting was that that was the first time they shot some stuff digitally and dropped it in to see whether or not the audience would pick it. Mark, were you sort of aware of the odd shots? There was, I think, six shots. I think it was yeah, six. It's, it's interesting you would, you would mention that because um, at the time, uh, around the, I guess it was just after that film was released, I worked on Vertical Limit. Uh, which was a um, an adventure film for Sony in the early 2000s, and that was also shot by David Tattersall, the very fine DP who did episodes one, two, and three. And we had a conversation about that. I I asked him, uh, how did you approach shooting on film versus shooting digitally? And his comment was interesting. He said it took him two weeks to figure out the real differences you have to approach shooting digitally as if you were shooting color reversal film, not negative film. And he said that was his lesson from episode one on some of the replacement scenes. He asked me, could you tell which scenes were digital and which scenes were film? And I said the only scene in all of episode one that really bothered me was a scene on a balcony. Yep, the same one. Night. I know. When it, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Where, yeah, they, where exactly. they had the discussion about the particles in the blood, yep. whatever it was, yep. that, that made the kid a, a Jedi. And he laughed and he said, what was the tip-off for you? And I, and I, and I told David, well, it seemed kind of uh, – it wasn't that it was soft. It just seemed kind of noisy and grainy and it just uh, had a different visual character to the scenes around it. And he said, yeah. He said, we saw this too, but we judged it to be acceptable, especially by the time you got to release print. Uh, 
in subsequent versions that were released, especially the digital and home video versions, there was some image processing done by Lowry, which is now Reliance Media Works in Burbank, which I think helped sharpen and grain reduce those shots and kept them more in line with all the shots on the uh, surrounding sides of that scene. When I'm really geeking out here, I understand that that stuff wasn't actually shot uh, 24 progressive because that was pre-950 Sony camera. And so as a consequence, they were actually doing, uh, uh, from a 30-frame, basically field-based solution. So, in fact, it wasn't the same technology that was then used in Australia when they were shooting Episode 2, because they'd now moved over to 24 Progressive, uh, which would have also seriously impacted that sense of uh, not looking quite right. Um, I don't think I was aware of many other shots but that one in particular i totally uh noticed in, in the cinema and uh and also i guess i hated the scenes <laughs> from a well, fan point no. of view so what is it the, it's the midi-chlorians yeah, yeah. that's it, the midi-chlorians how could i forget uh david did tell me that that uh, there was a learning growing experience both for the production crew and for sony and i believe when they initially had conversations with sony about the idea of electronic cinema uh, the people, the engineers in Japan were kind of horrified that they, that they wanted to keep it at 24 frames per second. And the Japanese very correctly said, but, but you don't understand, 24 frames looks terrible. The motion smoothness uh, doesn't look as good as 30 frames. It's got all these issues with strobing and all of that. But George, from an artistic point of view, said, no, it must be 24 frames because 24 frames is the look of film. If you're going to sell us on this new electronic system, you must give us a 24 frames per second mode. And so that is, that's how the, the F900 and the subsequent derivative Sony cameras were created. Well, the other thing that they were... The, the other, uh, another, another very important thing, I'm, I'm glad I remembered this, that uh, David Tattersall mentioned to me is... Uh, they encountered an issue with blue screen matting with the digital cameras where they discovered that some of the early experimental Sony cameras had enhancement modes that were (laughs) non-defeatable. So you would go through the menus, switch all the enhancement off, shoot some blue screen or green screen material, pull it into the compositing program, and discover, wait a minute, what's this weird edginess on on some of these... uh, these foreground uh, pieces of material, and they talked to the factory people, and they said, oh, well, that's because we're doing some aperture correction and enhancement way early on in the circuit, and you need that. And they said, no, 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 we don't want that. Sony didn't really get it in their heads that there are situations where enhancement is always bad. So it took some education on their part as well to learn, oh, I see there are certain instances where everything has to be off and the camera has to be 100% under manual control so that the cinematographer you know, can get exactly what he or she wants. So, well, well, so I think again, it's not even, learning, it's, but it's not even just that the cinematographer gets what they want. This was at a stage where there wasn't the same idea of we should have as neutral and a uh, sort of, and you'd appreciate that, obviously, compressed grade sense of what's coming out of the camera. Yeah, like Sony was at, flat and raw. Yeah, they wanted it to be looking good out of the camera because they were selling cameras. And quite frankly, they were in a lot of news, sports and other environments where no one would want it looking, you know, flat and raw out of the camera. So this was a new kind of space for them. But there's also one other thing that they were suffering from back then, which was that was a two-thirds inch sensor. And as a consequence, the optics for the hit that 
So if the difference between what they were shooting with lens-wise on uh, those tests in one and what they were doing in, in two was they'd gone to the digital Primos. And the digital Primos actually had about two and a half times the resolution that the Primos did. And Primo lenses from Panavision were superb, but the digital Primos were unbelievably good because if you just think about a picket fence for a second, you're trying to resolve a picket fence down to something the size of a you know, a fairly big, healthy postage stamp, and then suddenly you, you're going down to something a quarter of the size of that postage stamp. You have to be a lot sharper and a lot better in your optics to get a better image on the smaller... Uh, thing that you're targeting at. And that small thing you're targeting at was that two-thirds inch chip because these were not uh, the size of film. These were, you know, pre that uh, in those Sony cameras. So not only was there lensing issues, there was that data workflow that you mentioned. And of course, there was just the uh, the field and frame 24 stuff. So there was there's a lot of technical stuff going on there. And I think we, we sometimes forget how how important that film was to the advent of digital cinematography because two really was a landmark um mark were you aware of any film having more impact in that transition to digital cinematography i wasn't no that that caused a huge impact i, I remember some meetings at the asc and local simpty here in in los angeles talking about the impact of episode two and what it represented for uh people who worked in cinematography and camera operators in L.A. And I think initially people kind of dismissed it as a novelty. And, of course, uh, what happened over the next 10 years is it pointed the direction on the future of the entire industry and the collapse of the film business. Uh, it, it was interesting talking to David Tattersall uh, about Episode 2 in particular. He told me one of the secrets that he came up with was the key was uh, to expose for the highlights and then fill for the blacks, which is completely the opposite of shooting on film. So, again, he had to kind of learn his job over again. But as I often say, remember, with cinematography, it's not about the camera. It's about the skill of the person doing the lighting and the quality of the lenses. To me, that's far more important than whether you're shooting on red or Alexa or Sony or and, or film or anything else. Well, you said earlier that you worked on... Uh the Dances with Wolves transfer. And yeah. I spoke to Dean Semler at an event who was the DOP on that, but also did yeah. many other great films. Terrific digital, Fantastic terrific cinematography. Yep. Yeah. And I asked him what, what was the biggest difference in shooting digitally, thinking, I've, I've actually told this story before, I apologise for those who have heard it, but I said, what's the biggest difference to you about shooting digitally? And I expected him to come back with something like you just described, maybe kind of a technical kind of point of view about uh, how to approach it. And he said, the best thing is we don't have to interrupt the actors for a reload. <laughs> just at that moment, Michael, had that... Michael Mann, um, who, has, who has done quite a few digital projects in the last few years, told me the same thing and said he loves the fact that you've got 40 or 50 minute loads and you don't lose the momentum with actors. Uh, Michael Mann's favorite uh, saying was, the problem with film is every time you yell cut, all the minions rush in yep. and you get a hair person, a makeup person, the sound guy adjusting a wireless and something else. The actor wants to make a phone call to his agent. With digital, you keep going. George Lucas is very, very aware of that because he's an extremely productive, no-nonsense guy. Believe me, he rolls and rolls and rolls and rolls. They'll do four or five cameras at once and just be constantly shooting. So he gets miles and miles of footage a day. And it's all about giving him as many options as possible in post. Yeah, now one of the 
criticisms of the films one, two, and three uh, from the actors' point of view um, was that they spent a lot of their time just acting to green screen because those films were so primarily sort of uh, created in a virtual environment. Um, and look, I'm not going to get sort of super fussy about this, but I did think that there was digital artistry in all of these films um, in creating those digital environments that we should acknowledge because we can, we've been discussing some of the technical stuff and obviously, you know, shots where Anakin Skywalker's changed for Hayden Christensen and stuff. But looking at the Blu-ray, one of the great things about it, retouched, not retouched, fixed or not fixed, but certainly restored, we get a better view of the artistry that went into so much of this stuff that was gorgeous in all of the six films. And I was watching, uh, and I wrote in my notes, literally a note to myself, just said, best matte paintings ever. <laughs> because right. uh, I, now I, I, I want to know, does everybody else feel like it didn't feel like these were a product of regrading? They just felt like they were just damn good in the first place. Is that, is that what you felt, Matt? I mean, just felt like the matte paintings were awesome. The digital environments created, those wide establishing shots just were marvellous. Yeah, it was one of the first things that struck me as I started watching episode one was just not only the clarity and, and as, you've, as we've talked about, the, the, the colour grading, but just the detail that was in those backgrounds. And I don't think I'd ever seen it to that quality before. And it, was, it just reminded me of how much time must have been spent doing those and just how superb they do look. And Matt, you know, one of the things that we always try, strive for in CG struck me right out of the gate in episode one was the ageing and patina and just scratches and marks and scuffs and stuff that we saw from the art department through uh, the work of both, you know, physical effects, obviously special effects, and just straight art department like walls and C-3PO in the early scenes of episode four. So this is the first time on the lowest budget film of the, the you know, most unknown that it would ever be was still just aged and, and placed in a context of a dirty environment in just such a spectacular way, don't you think? Yeah, it just looked great. I think people obviously sat down and decided how long he'd been around, what he had done, and with all the characters, with all the environments, and had just really given it the love that it needed just to make it look that old and that worn and that battered. Uh, yeah, it just looked great, and it really helped to the believability of the film. I mean, I think that that it's hard for me now to get how clever the ILM artists were. Like, for example, there's some shots of the Imperial uh, ships, and this is covered in one of the extras that I was, you know, mocking the quality of. Um, they were talking about how to get the density of lights to give it the scale. And so they literally cut, like, little holes and had backlit rather than using fibre optics on some of the miniatures because they just had to have so many lights to indicate that it was so big to give away so much scale. The trouble is, a generation like myself, and I think probably yours, Matt, as well, came through learning that from, um, from Star Wars. Like, we would learn from them. This is what gave us scale. These are the tips that we needed for, for you know, selling this shot. And yet, I don't know where the ILM guys managed to, you know, have their thing because everything that seemed to come before it didn't achieve the the level that, that uh, ILM did with Star Wars. And Star Wars has been a textbook for many of us in just how to approach shots, hasn't it? Yeah, it's it's amazing to see the detail that they got in there, and I think it probably just goes back to a lot of the guys had a very kind of traditional background, they had a traditional art background, and 
they looked to that traditional uh, kind of medium as they brought it into the visual effects they were doing. And I think it's easy for my generation just to be very tech, very straight on the computer and not necessarily think about how light works or how perspective works and just assume that Maya will do it for us and uh, we don't need to think about it. So I think because they didn't have the tools and they were trying to go for that look, it forced them into looking to more the old school and, and more the art side of things straight off the bat. I mean, those zero-gravity explosions just looked terrific. I mean, obviously some of them were redone in some of the restoration stuff, but nevertheless, that whole sort of pioneering work of shooting super high-speed zero-gravity from underneath, I mean, everything like that just became the textbook of how to do that from there on out. And, uh, and I guess you also benefit enormously from the visual complexity that live action just gives you, that you get the unexpected, that you get all the detail in the smoke plumes. You don't have to model it because it's real smoke coming out the back of the miniature that's flying across the the screen. Oh, oh, Mark, I did have one point for you. I was desperately wanting to ask you, and you'd know this. Um, I was talking about C-3PO and, and how he was aged really well uh, and how dirty he was. In episode four, when they are meeting the sand people and that sort of initial bit in the um, uh, when they first land on the planet, there's, there are these chromatic ping flares coming off C-3PO, and I don't remember them, but then I wasn't educated enough to even know what I was looking at when I saw it in 77. Were they added in post, or was that actually in camera? Would you know? I don't believe so. You know, the style of filmmaking in the 70s uh, typically went for these heavy-duty diffusion filters, and I know that was particularly the style for Gilbert Taylor, uh, the British cinematographer who shot the original Star Wars. So really, the whole movie is very soft and very kind of flary. It, it doesn't exactly have a starburst filter, but it's sort of smudging in that area. And the film has always been that way. To some degree, the technicians at Lowry, which is now Reliance Media Works in Burbank, uh, went in and did a lot of sharpening in addition to the grain reduction to try to counteract that soft, diffuse look. Another film that looks very much like that is, is the original uh, 1978 Superman which, you know, mm, yep. the whole thing looks, looks like you're shooting it through a stocking or something. But that was just the style of the period, and it looked beautiful back then. Nowadays, we look at it and we go, what the hell is this? It looks like it's got, you know, a thousand lines, a, a thousand pixels of resolution. So it's, it's almost the, the opposite of 4K. Was that Larry but, process but the think, same one they used on Zodiac when they were sharpening up and fixing up the stuff off the... Uh of Zodiac where they were basically taking the information from the different colour channels and causing it to be fed through to improve the other colour channels? Is that the same process that you're referring to? The Lowry process is actually a group of processes. Uh, because I work for Lowry, at least I occasionally freelance for okay. Lowry, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of limited in, in how much I can disclose about it. But what I can tell you in a general way is um, they go through a process of uh, grain reduction and grain management which essentially removes all of the grain from the entire motion picture, whether it's shot on, on digital or shot on film. And then they take a representative sampling of the actual grain from the uh, show, and then, and then they go back in, selectively enhance certain shots to meet the director and the producer's requirements. And once everything is approved they apply a rendered grain structure to the entire movie so that everything is absolutely consistent frame to frame, scene to scene, shot to shot. Uh, the same kind of process was done as recently as Social Network, to name one, where they were involved in taking uh, the 2K 
posted version of that red shot film and up-resing it to 4K and enhancing it and grain reducing it at the same time. Right. Okay. That's, uh, that's uh, a very difficult process because um, obviously the second you're hitting grain, you're hitting high frequency and, and obviously it's more random, but it's, it, you really don't want to be affecting the image high frequency stuff. Um, so grain reduction while a very well understood area of uh, restoration work is still, I think, you know, somewhat of a a marvel to me that it comes out looking as good as it does and doesn't screw up the image. It really is um, some really cool maths that's going on there to get that to work. Grain reduction kind of has um, a bad connotation nowadays, especially to Blu-ray fans and video collectors and so on. They sort of associate it with the old DVNR. Uh, of the yeah. early 90s and early 2000s, especially with high uh, high definition. DVNR is the digital vision noise reducer from a company in Sweden. And the problem with that is it's a real-time process, uh, which unfortunately, because of the, the way it judges temporal noise characteristics, it tends to add smear and lag to images. And so when, whenever people think of video noise reduction or grain noise reduction, they, they think, oh, my God, this is going to hopelessly screw up the image. And this is not true. It all depends on how you apply it, how you do it, and the skill of the uh, person making the decisions about how much to reduce and what to leave in. We have a saying in the noise reduction business, not only for audio but also for film and video, and that is you can't ever take all of it out because it seems very dead without it. You have to leave a little in as a kind of perfume to sort of make it real and lifelike. Yeah. So, so that's one of the keys to leave some noise in so that it's natural and lifelike. And that goes with whether you're shooting on RED or Alexa or Sony or film or what have you. It's, it's, it all has to be you know, continuous. The key is you don't want the noise to kick up so that it's five times higher in, in shot A than it is in shot B. That was the process that took the most time for Star Wars. And also, the other thing is, we're talking about Blu-ray releases here. On any kind of compression DVD, Blu-ray kind of release, noise is going to affect the compression because you have to devote bandwidth to dealing with it. So, uh, you know, a, a lower noise print is going to give you a better image because the compression can go into stuff we care about and not stuff that we don't care about. So, you know, there's the... Although, uh, an interesting problem with too much noise reduction, if you remember the early Blu-ray and DVD releases of North by Northwest a few years ago, that was an early process where they did a little too much noise reduction. And as a result, we had situations with large expanses of blue sky that appeared to be like one solid color. And unfortunately, the... Um, DVD and Blu-ray compression engines would see an area like this and kind of overreact, and you start start getting that kind of blocky, mm. uh, you know, uh, what's the word they call it? Um, it's I the, want to call it a, the, sort of the screen door effect, yeah, where you sort of you sort of get this hashy, blocky sort of effect. And again, it's the absence of noise that fools the uh, compression engine and it kind of overreacts you need a little grain going on in the background just to give the compression engine something to bite onto that's a word for word quote from a friend of mine who was a compressionist at warner brothers when hd dvd was first starting up and he he told me that of their difficulties in dealing with material that had excessive noise reduction 
One of the things we haven't uh, discussed in this uh, discussion about revisions is that it isn't over and that we're about to go into next year the 3D editions of the films, uh, being supervised by John Knoll, which is probably the best news about the whole thing. Um, and, and clearly they're going to, you know, do a pretty good job. I've, I've actually seen a test that was done of the beginning of episode one, which is the space battle, which, by the way, I don't know if you guys, you probably do know this, but I didn't realize this, but Steven Spielberg actually directed a lot of that opening space battle of, um, of, scene, of episode one. Uh, and it was because he decided that he would not be able to direct the film and he wanted to have some kind of role to play. So almost, I think, completely uncredited. But I spoke to the previous artist that actually worked with him because um, he was sending through kind of napkin pencil drawings of what he wanted. He, that whole battle pre-crashing back, uh, back to the planet uh, in episode one um, was... Uh, now, am I saying episode one? I think it was episode one. Was that the space battle? It's episode three, three. I think. I'm sorry, it's episode I was three. Say right. three yeah. yeah, sorry, I'm, I completely screwed that. Yes, but it is episode three. But before it crashes back down uh, was a Spielberg direction. But I saw that episode three stuff converted to stereo. Uh, John Montgomery and I went to a presentation in America and we saw it in a perfect, perfectly aligned, perfect stereo environment. I've got to say, it was pretty bloody impressive. Um, and this, this was the 3D conversion done by the guys at uh, PostLogic? Uh, I don't know if it was post-logic, but I don't know if I can even discuss who it was, but we, it was a, that first scene we saw. It wasn't part of the new 3D conversion, but it was they were looking at this before they announced um, the, you know, in 2000 and whatever they announced it, um, that they were going to do the uh, conversion. And so a number of companies had been doing tests and doing stuff. And, of course, it really depends, on, I think, on 3D, on the nature of what the story is. But if you are telling something that tends to be first-person kind of driven, such as the point of view of flying through a space battle, then 3D is really immersive and works really, really well. I don't know that I want to see, you know, uh, a really strong sort of narrative drama with lots of sort of serious lengthy discussions converted to 3D per se. But when you've got something that's as Avatar was and as, a, as that certainly start of episode three is, that's really kind of driven from the point of view of, some of the characters and you're seeing what they're seeing kind of thing um, as you get with a race car sequence or a, or a plane sequence or a spacecraft sequence. It's pretty interesting. Are, are you guys at all looking forward to seeing these films in 3D? Will you even see them in 3D? Matt, are you going to go and see them in, if they come out? I think if I, if I didn't go and see them in 3D, I think my, my boys would kill me. Okay. So um, <laughs> the plan is definitely to go. I would be really interested to, to see what they look like. Um, I think... After Avatar, I can't think of anything else that I'd like to see in 3D other than these Star Wars movies. So, uh, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing them. And with John Noel at the, high, at the helm, I think they're going to look fantastic. Mark? I hope they can uh, do what Michael Bay did with Transformers this year and at least address the issue of loss of brightness with the 3D glasses. That's the single thing that bothers me most as a colorist and a post-production person, the fact that we're no longer seeing a 14-foot lamp or film projection or digital projection image. We're seeing something that's closer to maybe five or six foot lamperts at most through the 3D glasses. If Lucas and his other people can figure out a solution to the brightness problem in 3D, I'm all for it. Well, now, in that film that you referenced, they 
well, it's perceived, I don't have this firsthand, but it feels like the film was not cutting as fast as the earlier Transformers films to give time for the 3D to play, which um, I totally agree with you about the light level, couldn't agree more, but um, this film was being converted, so you don't have any control over that editorial kind of pacing to match the 3d that's one of the disadvantages of going back and converting a film do you do you feel like i mean are you a fan of 3d you think that this film will convert well not speaking now technically but just in terms of like the pacing of it and the style of shots i i tend to agree with walter murch's criticism of 3d from an editorial point of view and it and it is as you say very jarring to do very fast cutting especially when you're cutting from uh, a shot that has uh, somebody on the far left side of the screen, and then boom, you cut to somebody who's way on the, on the far right side of the screen, or someone way in the foreground to a distant wide shot. It's it's a lot more jarring to have that juxtaposition back and forth, whereas that doesn't exist in regular flat 2D. So there are editorial decisions to be taken into consideration. I'm very curious to see what, for example, Jim Cameron's going to be doing with the current 3D conversion that's going on for Titanic because that's definitely a film that he had never designed for 3D. So how will he deal with that? I don't know. Will he recut it? Very good question. Yeah. There's a few ways around things, aren't there? I think you can have to do a vase like cross-dissolve through the frames to try and let your eyes change in the convergence of the um, action that you'd be looking at from one shot to the other. But the staging well, I know, is something you don't have to I know, I know in the case of Lion King, which I think is now in theaters or about yep, to be in theaters is. in 3D, mm-hmm. uh, they, they handled it very simply. Whenever there were fast-cutting situations uh, in 3D, they simply pulled in the Z-axis so that everything was not so 3D-ish. So they, they deliberately uh, limited the depth of those images images so that it wouldn't be too jarring. And I think that was a very, very smart, creative decision on the part of the filmmakers. And I'm, I'm thinking that, you know, George Lucas is a very, very bright man. And that's, that's something I, I want all the fans to keep in mind. Every, everything you see in these Blu-rays uh, was thought about and endlessly debated. So they, they weren't just thrown together arbitrarily. They were done through months of decision and many hours of, uh, of arguments. So I, I think in the case of the 3D stuff... I, I can bet you they're going to be testing it many, many, many times until they're convinced they're going in the right direction. But I guarantee you there will be more changes. So <laughs> George Mark, will continue changing until, until he's gone, I think. So, Mark, that, uh, so Robert, Newman, who, uh, Robert Newman, who did the uh, or supervised the stereography for Disney Online, we've got an interview with him on FX Guide where he discusses that. Um, Fantastic, and how uh, they did that. There's even a video clip, um, like a bonus video we've got in there that uh, from the Disney guys. But I, like, I do agree. Like, I, I'm not, um, as I said at the outset, I'm not really one of those people that cares to buy uh, figurines and and do that kind of stuff. Um, so I think you know, if he wants to change the films, like you know, knock yourself out. And also, as you pointed out, they're his films. Um, I, I know it's easy to make sort of jokes about these things. And to a certain extent, I find those jokes funny too. I saw somebody on Twitter who said it was like he ate a sandwich, you know, 10 years ago and he keeps on throwing salt and mayonnaise down his throat to improve it. Um, but by the same token, I also think that you can't, you can't get past the fact that this is the film industry 
and nothing was stopping people from going out and buying Star Wars DVDs uh, a month ago. But a lot of them went out and bought DVDs, Blu-rays this month. In fact, this is a, an absolutely vastly high-grossing DVD Blu-ray release. And so by doing the work that he's done and re-releasing the films the way he's done, he's made a whole lot of money. And, you know, they're his films, and if he wants to make more money out of them, then, you know, so be it. Um, Definitely. Don't, don't forget, already, as we are recording this podcast, uh, the, the Star Wars Blu-ray box set is the number one selling Blu-ray disc in history. Yeah. And it's only been out five or six days, at least in the United States. I think they're coming very close to have ha- having sold something like 700,000, 800,000 copies. And, and quite frankly, you know, people sort of have these arguments time and time again. And I don't think that, you know, they're going out to destroy all copies of previous DVDs that were out there or destroy all copies of any VHSs that are out there. But people aren't going to look at the VHSs when they've got a Blu-ray because it looks better. And so that's what's going to happen. And I don't come at this from any other point of view than just a financial when I say that, you know, it's clearly worked because he's sold a lot. <laughs> you, you know, it's hard to argue with somebody that's, um, that's got a property that they've decided to, um, to remarket to an audience. And, you know, Disney, as you say, has done the same thing with The Lion King. And maybe that brings The Lion King or Star Wars to a whole generation that otherwise just would not go and see it. Um, and that, I think, is probably, probably a good thing. Um, so that sort of kind of wraps up the show, other than I just think we haven't probably spent enough time, uh, again, just highlighting how good the visual effects were in pretty much all the films. Um, and I just thought we'd go around and if we could just name maybe two or three shots that from the collection of the six just really resonated you know i would really prefer these to be technical rather than emotional beats in the film but are there any shots that you kind of um just looking at them again went wow that is just awesome uh so i'll start with you matt Uh, and i haven't given you guys any warning that i was going to do this but this is a film that has a lot of just artistry in it and i think it'd be shame to finish this podcast without just uh, focusing on the art of the the work that was done so matt any like maybe two shots or three that you just really felt like were either now or when you first saw them were magnificent one of them that comes to mind immediately is the uh, the pod race in uh, episode one i remember just seeing that and thinking i'm looking at minutes and minutes of cg backgrounds and they look superb um, so that's one thing that immediately springs to mind and also i think that probably the emotional um, believability of of Yoda in probably episode two or three. Um, I could probably watch that all day. Mark, what about you? For me, the shots that have uh, have the most uh, resonance for me are really the emotional ones rather than the uh, the technical ones. Just the shots of uh, Luke seeing his burned burned and uh, broken bodies of uh, his aunt and uncle smoking on the floor of the desert or uh, Luke standing and watching the uh, the two setting suns on his planet. Uh, little things like that, which are not complicated, very simple effects to do, a physical effect in the case of the skeletons. Those are the ones that are, are so iconic for me with Star Wars. And uh, the shots have been the same for over 30 years now, and yet they still have a tremendous impact on me. I guess you saw the NASA press conference that John Knoll was at where they actually found a planet revolving a twin binary sun system that would actually produce that sunset. Did you see that just during the week? Mm-hmm. It was, uh, and I just thought it was amazing that NASA actually had John Knoll at the press conference because that was just like, 
uh, clearly it had just been a, a really great way to identify it was a foreign uh, place. But I agree, it's a killer shot and uh, and really, really wonderful. That I'm going to give you a couple. I, well, actually, I'm going to give you three. Firstly, to this day, I'm still kind of dumbfounded by some of the uh, stuff in episode one. When um, Obi-Wan Kenobi is turning off the tractor beam, uh, the quality of the matte painting, he's standing on this kind of shaft that goes, seems to go down for forever. And and obviously, you get a really good look at that shot. And obviously, there's a bit of live action, a bit of matte painting. And how they managed to pull that off, and and for that matter, any of these kind of matte paintings, where it wasn't just a, a wide establishing shot, but where it's a blending. And uh, and my second example of that is the there's a uh, the emperor arrives uh, on one of the uh, films, and there's an entire army or legion of um, guys waiting, and Vader is uh, sort of greeting him. And these are all painted. These aren't massive sims. And the, the quality of the painting to match in with the film, to get that right in an age where you couldn't have the tools that Mark you would use daily to balance and grade and match, I mean, I just, I really can't get my head around how hard that would be to paint. I, I just find that it's one thing to paint something realistic. It's another thing to paint it to match the neg. Um, it just, I find that just staggeringly humbling that the guys were were that good at it. And then the other thing I just thought I'd throw out just by way of the other end of the spectrum is um, when we see some of the planets in the new versions, uh, there are just these gorgeous, dripping kind of warm autumn colours of planets with wonderful waterfalls and and flowers. And uh, it's it just feels to me like um, there was a a breadth of kind of ability to get an environment, be it snow-covered or whatever. But in this case, it was just a sort of a lush, positive view of a world that really doesn't necessarily scream an obvious effect. But, you know, whether they're doing tiny touches like turning salt into waterfalls that stick in the back of shots or just lighting them um, so well and uh, producing such wonderful integration of miniatures and, and uh, live action and matte paintings. They, they, just, they just nailed it in terms of uh, that sort of luscious uh, sense. And in particular in the first films, when they didn't have the grading ability to just sort of wind up a shot. I mean, I've taken shots and graded them and they made them look pretty good. But <laughs> these guys just, in the optical uh, printer days, um, and when you're running through release prints and answer prints and stuff, you don't have the ability to change the contrast and, and you know, do power windows and stuff. You just have pretty much a couple of points of magenta and whatever. So I think that um, that, uh, that path of being able to, to match stuff up and produce those environments and the original matte paintings are, to this day, just so humbling to me. I'm sure you guys would agree. I think yeah, that goes totally. back they to what the, what, what the great film critic Roger Ebert once said. He, he, he once said, the mark of a truly great motion picture is when they can take you to a place that you know doesn't exist, but make you believe it's really there and you visited it. And that's kind of the way I look at Star Wars. I feel like I've, I've stood in the desert, I've been on those planets, and I know what those places look like. And the fact that Lucas was able to pull that off is incredible, and, and it's certainly a testament to all the technicians and the, the wonderful men and women over at uh, ILM that they could pull that off. And, and let's face it, as I think we alluded to earlier, this film you know, didn't have the... Uh, every shot is at a visual effect shot. Well, these films in the early days especially didn't have every shot as a visual effect shot. So the art department, the, the guys that worked so well with ILM that weren't necessarily part of Industrial Light and Magic that just did the 
level of detailing that made those close-ups work. Um, I think the art department, especially in the first ones where they didn't have the budget, produced such great costuming, such great looks, such iconic stuff that it's hard to imagine a time when they, they didn't exist. And I've got to say, my kids were watching the films with me and they kept on laughing and they were laughing because they kept on hearing lines that I've used in, you know, day-to-day -day life. <laughs> uh, and, and they, you know, there are just so many lines that, uh, that uh, would come out and they'd sort of look at me as if to say, oh, that's where you got it from. <laughs> so, I've got a bad feeling about this. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I am your father. Um, actually, it's funny that, you know, I remember that line as being Luke, I am your father. And of course, the line in the film is just, I am your father. It's a bit like uh, the Casablanca line, you know, where it's gone into film myth. Play it again, Sam. Yeah, and it's never actually said actually, in the film. Actually, the read is, the read is, I am your father. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's great, yeah. Nothing like James Earl Jones, the voice of God. Oh, yeah, yeah. The best thing CNN ever did, hiring him to do the promos back when. Hey, um, guys. You know, uh, one, one more quick thing, Mike. Yeah, sure. We should acknowledge the work of the cinematographers who contributed you can contributed so much to the look of Star Wars because um, I, I don't think they get enough recognition for what they did, especially for those primitive times back in the 70s and 80s. And that includes uh, Gilbert Taylor for Episode Four, Peter Shashitsky for Empire Strikes Back, and Alan Hume for Jedi, and of course the great David Tattersall for Episodes One, Two, and Three. It's amazing the visual work that those guys did in harmony with the visual effects people, and and especially when you consider the primitive conditions and instruments and technology of the time, the fact that they were able to produce such be such beautiful images so many years ago is amazing, and that they hold up so well today is an amazing testament to their skill. Do you have a favorite film? Uh, wouldn't you know? It's the one I didn't get to work on, which was Empire Strikes Back. Uh, I, I think it's it's a stunning film. It's it's in my top ten of all time. It's a it's a very dark, moody, emotional film. But I I really love the way it's structured. I love the way it's uh, put together. Even though when you think about it, the plot makes no sense. The movie ends almost as it begins with Luke having accomplished almost nothing, and yet it's such an interesting journey along the way with the little discoveries we have, the treachery and the, uh, the plots, the oh, characters, it, and so on. It also has the and incest it's, it's such kiss. A, it's such a visually beautiful thing. Oh, yeah, let's not forget the incest kiss. We've got to throw that in. But uh, it, it's, it's just a wonderful film, yeah. and, I, and I think Irwin, Irwin Kirshner deserves a lot of credit for that. It is a shame that the directors, the non-Lucas uh, directors, get almost forgotten in this because clearly they contributed a lot. Hey, uh, Matt, what about you? Is there a film you really like? I would have to probably say episode four, New Hope. That would probably be my favorite out of all six of them. I, I've got to say I'm, I'm probably the same just because no matter how hard I try, I can't get past that first shot where it came, just keeps on coming overhead. Yeah, and, it's just massive. And it was, yeah, it's like a life-changing um, moment. I only get a few of those in your life. So, so there shot, you go. Shot in a parking lot in Van Nuys. Do you know, it took me forever to work out how they did the titles scrolling off until I realized they'd laid it on the floor and run the camera over it. Um, exactly. We haven't discussed much about the extras on the DVDs. There are quite a lot of extras. I don't know the extras. I, did you guys find any gems in the extras? Because i got to say, I, I, I kind of thought I was glad to see the films and stuff, but I didn't feel like any of the extras blew my socks off. But did, I didn't go through them all because I don't have 400 hours free to go through every single one. But did you – there were three – extra discs in this box set did anyone find any extras that they were really surprised by 
the deleted scenes are hilarious. They're they're really ugly. It's it's horrible work print. Hilarious. They've got I'd say at least seven or eight additional scenes that were cut out of the film. And what's on the Blu-ray is this ancient 35 millimeter work print, which appears to have been transferred on a, on an old rank Centel flying spot scanner about 20 years ago to one inch or something. And and Mike will laugh at this the the fact that you can actually see the print bounce up and down when it starts as it goes to the splices and all that. So I, <laughs> I, I found that very nostalgic from a color correction point of view, seeing such an old tech transfer there. And, uh, and, and you know what? All of the deleted scenes are horrible. I, I absolutely understand why, why they were deleted. Yeah. Them. Why is and, it people and, just and, think that deleted scenes back in a film will make it a better film? Yes, sometimes sometimes more footage is just more crap. It, do, yeah. it doesn't necessarily tell the story better. It doesn't necessarily look better. If anything, I, I think these scenes might have watered down the story and slowed it down more. And I think Lucas was absolutely right to cut them out in this case. And uh, But at the same time, it's a fascinating bit of cinema history to see them and understand in context how the scene would have worked that way. So it's kind of interesting, you know, from that historical point of view. Uh, a lot of those scenes, by the way, are, are uh, mentioned prominently in Michael Kaminsky's Secret History of Star Wars book, which I think we haven't uh, mentioned yet in the podcast. And uh, I, I just, just as a, as a shout-out to Michael, uh, we can mention secrethistoryofstarwars.com, where he has an entire website devoted to the mystique and mystery and legends of all the different versions of Star Wars over the years, which I, I think is a fascinating commentary. I don't always agree with, with Michael's conclusions, but I, I can't deny his passion and his incredible knowledge of how the stories uh, came along, not only the changes, but also how the story started out and where they wound up. So it's a fascinating thing to see, and I, and I encourage fans to, uh, to pick up the book and read it. And again, uh, even, even though I don't necessarily agree with it, I have to say it's a, it's a fascinating look, especially when you go back to the early scripts and see how Star Wars developed and turned into this massive pop culture phenomena. It's a, an amazing story. And the Matt, story behind the story, if you will. And Matt, did you see anything on the deleted, or the, uh, the extras that really popped for you? Um, some of it was kind of repeats of things I'd seen before, but I did look through some of the concept art and map paintings and um, costume turnarounds, and they were quite nice just because you really got a chance to look at them. And uh, there was also an interesting documentary. I think it was called something like Puppets to Pixels, State of the Art Previs, and that was really interesting. You know, the only thing we haven't mentioned, and I, I should get taken out, side put a blindfold on and shot for not mentioning it is the score of star wars the, the oh, yeah. because let's face it one of the things and i've just glanced back at my notes when i was asking this question of you to see if i had noted anything and i've just got john williams score makes this film that i've written down and and it is true we we uh, should have we can't finish the podcast without mentioning how great the audio was on this from a musical scoring point of view it lifted this film unbelievably well all these films i think um I, I think especially the score for empire strikes back which to me is one of the greatest if not the greatest scores that john williams ever did yeah and and the the theming of each of the characters and how they 
And I, I, I tell you, when I heard some of the music um, again yesterday, even though I've obviously seen it many times since I first got right back to 77, I mean, I, I could almost feel it. Yeah. Uh, it, it was so imprinted on my psyche. Um, it just, I don't think the latter films were quite as good, as you say, as, as it got in, um, in, uh, in, the, in the fifth film, uh, which I think was, as you say, just magnificent. So there you go. Probably a, a little, not, not enough too late, but we should just acknowledge how great the score was. I also want to just acknowledge before we go um, the great work of our team behind the scenes here at the VFX show. Uh, Todd Shelton is, uh, and Matt Graham do our producing and, and editing and stuff and putting the shows together, and they do a really huge job each week. I try and mention them, but um, I don't mention them enough, and we just totally appreciate all the work that they do. We also appreciate you guys uh, contributing ideas and stuff to the shows, and especially the retro shows over at... Um, at fxguide.com and our Twitter feed, which is the VFX show. Um, Matt, if somebody wants to uh, follow you, are you on the Twitters? Uh, yeah, I'm on there as uh, Matt D. Leonard. So you can follow me there. And Mark, if anyone wants to uh, email you or follow you, or do you have a website or somewhere they, where you can direct them to if they wanted to? They can find me at cinesound.tv, which is C-I-N-E-S-O-U-N-D. And I'm available as a post-production consultant and freelance colorist here in Los Angeles. And I want to thank you guys an enormous amount for being here. I also want a, a bit of a shout-out to Matt, who was, uh, Matt Walden, who was going to be with us this week, but I couldn't pull it off for technical reasons, so I apologize to my good friend Matt. It was just really bad luck uh, that I screwed up so badly. I'm sorry about that, mate. But, um, yeah, so thanks to everybody that's contributed. Thanks to you guys for listening. Um, we really do uh, appreciate it. I've enjoyed the show tremendously, so thanks for all of you guys for being with us. And hopefully uh, we can get you guys back if I ask nicely. Would you maybe consider coming back? Mark and Matt? Yeah, sure, definitely. Anything. That would be great. Excellent. <laughs> Terrific. All right. Well, until next time, we'll see you guys. Um, there's literally tens of hours of HD Blu-ray stuff to be absorbed, but it is great if you can uh, spin it out over a bit and watch them. And, uh, you know, put down the iPad and put down the laptop and maybe dim the lights a bit and try and get some of that experience of what it was like to uh, really kind of breathe in that universe and uh, go to places that uh, you haven't been. It's, it's too easy to watch these things in a, in a sort of they're on in the background kind of way, but they actually are films, I think, that deserve to be really viewed again. So thanks so much for being with us. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See ya. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at vfx at fxguide.com. Copyright 2012, FX Guide, LLC.